Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12. So we're in Isaiah chapter 12, and not that you're counting, but this is the 31st sermon in Isaiah. You may be wondering, well, when's the halfway point? Well, we're way past it. We've got about 20 left. What we're doing in this series is we're covering the first part of Isaiah, which is really 1 through 12. We're covering that intensely. So you have, a, to use a theological word, a feel for the rest of the book. You have the hermeneutical sense and keys and truths that are at work so you can understand the rest of the book. That's kind of our... So you'll notice after chapter 12, we'll pick up speed. But chapter 12, so hopeful. Chapter 11 and 12 are so hopeful. And chapter 12 is almost the conclusion to this first part of the book in chapters 1 through 11. And we'll cover the first two verses of chapter 12. And you got to come back next week. Uh, we don't have a cliffhanger ending, but we'll cover the rest of chapter 12 and the rest of the hope that you see in this passage. So let's look together at God's Word. Isaiah 12, beginning in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, let us take these hopeful words, apply them to our hearts as only your Spirit can. Lead us and guide us in all truth that this community and we as individual believers would reflect the wonder of the work you have done through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We have all had that experience of relief when you get home. When you get home. I mean, it could be from a long trip that you've taken to maybe some not-so-nice cities or places in the world, and you come home, and you open the door, and you breathe that familiar air, and there's just that sense of relief. Oh, I'm home now. And you don't have to go on a long trip to have that sense of relief. You might feel that sense of relief just coming home from work. Ah, or kids, you might have that sense of relief when you come home from school, busy day at school with all the extracurricular activities. At the end of the day, you come home, you start having that snack, and ah, that sense of relief. Well, you can multiply that exponentially over and over again to the greatest degree, and you would have the sense of relief that Israel has as returning exiles, when God restores them to the land. This is a passage of Scripture that looks forward to that time where Israel would uh, return from exile. And we see twice in this uh, passage, look in verse 1, you will say in that day, and then we get a repetition of that in verse 4, you will say in that day. And the idea here, Isaiah is looking forward to their return from exile, and this is this wonderful relief and joy they have in returning home, in coming back. And this is uh, 
An example of this is in Psalm 126. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. That's Psalm 126.1. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with uh, shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So this, this looking forward to arriving at home in all that spiritual sense, every generation has basically an idea of what the good life looks like. And those, of course, are competing. One generation's version of the good life is not the next. And our own community has an idea and some idols associated with it in terms of what the good life looks like. But the good life, the Bible has a competing idea of what the good life looks like. It's called the remnant life. The remnant is this group of people that God has been faithful to preserve even through the warfare surrounding the invasion and exile. And this idea of the remnant, it's first talked about in chapter 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, those biblical cities that were wiped out by God's judgment. A few survivors, this idea that God will preserve his people throughout all generations, he does it here. That Christ would rightly be descendant from David, and he does it here too, in this generation. We are analogous to this remnant that God has preserved. And throughout church history, there have always been people who have confessed Christ and been faithful to Him. This is evidence of God's faithfulness. And to live this remnant life is to experience God's mercy and to have this wonderful sense of relief that we have escaped sin, escaped judgment, and hell. And that experience that the remnant had back then blossoms in this wonderful joy that they have, this happiness. It's transformative for them, and it's transformative to us too. And we're going to look at what this remnant life, what does the good life really look like? We're going to look at that, and the first thing I'll I'll show you here is that the remnant life, the good life on this side of the cross is a life of giving thanks, giving thanks. And you see that in verse one, you will say in that day, and we got to hit the pause button just if you're newer to our Isaiah series, anytime Isaiah writes in that day, that's a key phrase. We saw it twice last week in chapter 11, verse 10 and 11. In that day is a future day, but it's actually the convergence of three futures. And that makes it even more hopeful. It's the future for the people then. It's the future for the people at Christ's first advent, and it's our future at the end of the ages. So three different futures converge when Isaiah says, in that day, and that phrase is repeated. 40 times in the book of Isaiah. So in that day envisions really a second exodus, a reversal of the exodus that happens in the Old Testament, God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And you see that context at the end of chapter 11. 
There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And there's this return that's going to happen. Uh, now into chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you. Who's the you here? It's the remnant. It's God's people being thankful for God's mercy and grace and that transformative experience of being the subjects of his affection and his love and his kindness and his forgiveness. You will say in that day, the remnant will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. The giving thanks is assigned to God himself. Now, this is important to understand because oftentimes people will say, oh yeah, we need to do that gratitude thing. You know, the gratitude thing, the thanksgiving thing. And if you really listen to people and they think through sort of what is good in their life, oftentimes they'll say, well, I really got lucky. I really got lucky. Or they'll say, thanks to the big guy upstairs. And big guy upstairs, that's, that's deism. That is a worldview the Bible knows nothing of. God is intimately involved in the details of people's lives. And hear me out here. Anything good in your life, God did that. Not you. And it's okay. I want to give you permission. And you can, you can blame me. My pastor told me to do this. When you hear people say, oh, how lucky, you know, it's okay to break into that and say, you know, I don't believe in luck. It's providential. There is a God who is behind every detail of our life, and He is the one who is sovereign, and He's the one who has blessed you. Give thanks to Him. And big guy upstairs, no. No, it's the God of the Bible we owe our thanks to. So the giving thanks here is directed to a person. And the more you and I give thanks to God himself, not to luck, not to circumstances, not to some generic heavenly being above, the more we will experience this remnant life, the joy and the gratitude that comes from being followers of Christ. And the reason for the giving thanks, notice here, this is where it gets good. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Oh, we have just left modern evangelicalism behind, haven't we? We're talking about a God who gets angry here. And the idea is that you haven't really experienced the wonder of God's mercy if you haven't really escaped anything. If God is lucky to have me, if God's full-time job is to be my celestial concierge making my life good, I'm not really going to be thankful, am I? We read about God's anger, there's the four-time repetition. So in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, you get a three-time repetition of the word holy. This is to the superlative. God is absolutely holy. Then on top of that, you get a four-time repetition of the same phrase and verse in chapter 9 at the end of verse 12, for all this 
His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. It's there in chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 17, at the end of chapter 9, verse 21, in the fourth repetition. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still is in chapter 10, verse 4. And I bring that up to say this, for all this, what's the this? Why is God angry? It's because he is holy and it's because we are sinners. And certainly, if you understand anything in reading Isaiah chapter 1 through 10, you understand something of the ways in which Israel, God's people, have sinned against him. They are idolaters. They struggle, just like we do, in trusting in him. They make alliances with other countries rather than trust in God. They're guilty of a fake kind of go-through-the-motions type worship. And not only that, they don't have a just society because they don't take care of their widows and orphans, expressing the same compassion they have experienced to others. And so in these ways, here's what I'm getting at. God's anger is absolutely justified. Absolutely justified. And the wonder of wonders is this, back to Isaiah chapter 12, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The anger turning away then was in Israel's return from exile and restoration to their uh, country. Our understanding is much fuller because what they experienced, we now have experienced spiritually and eternally through Jesus Christ. How does God's anger get turned away? Except through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We call this propitiation. It's the turning away of divine wrath due to us for sin. Let me connect this for you. If you have not really escaped God's anger for your sin... The gospel is not really good news. It's, it's okay news, but it's not really earth-shattering, transforming good news unless we understand that that wrath was aimed for us and that we of all people have gotten that which we do not deserve through Christ's love. You know, the best meal I ever ate I remember it third, over 30 years later. Best meal I ever ate was at a McDonald's. It was. And I need to probably explain myself here because I doubt you look forward to McDonald's. McDonald's is just something that happens to you on a road trip because there's no other place to go. But the best, one of the best meals I ever ate was at a McDonald's. And the story goes like this. I went to a junior high where you did an outdoor education trip, a backpacking trip in northwest Arkansas. And so you, this was part of, you know, remember things like getting outside and all that. I benefited from that. But we went on this backpacking trip, and we're a bunch of middle school boys, and they put you in different groups, and you have sort of tense and everything, and they would give you the ingredients to make the meal. Yeah, here's where the trouble starts. And you were responsible for cooking your dinner. Yeah, we were hungry. The culinary arts were not something 
myself or the people in my group practiced. And so we couldn't, I mean, all you had to do was boil water, pour it in the envelope, wait. Yeah, that was too much. And the more complex meals, we didn't have, we didn't have any hope in making them turn out. So as the week progressed, we got hungrier and hungrier as we hiked and did the things that you did on this trip. And then finally, we discovered fried bread. They would give you like a loaf of bread. And so we started to subsist on fried bread, fried white bread. So you can imagine now when the trip was over and we're on the bus and we're heading home and the bus pulls up to McDonald's, you can imagine people ordering two and three meals because they're so hungry. Your level of thanksgiving is inversely related to your sense of what you deserve before God. Your level of thanksgiving is related to what you have avoided with God. If God is not a holy, just God, if we're not really sinners, if God doesn't demand holiness, then your level of thanksgiving will shrink and fall to that level, and you'll have that sort of generic mush. But if you understand something, and we can't fully grasp the holiness of God, so far beyond it is from our finite minds, and we cannot grasp necessarily the depth of our sin before this holy God, but if we apprehend something of it, then we become a thankful people who have avoided hell and that which the modern church is afraid to preach about. Your level of thanksgiving is inversely related to your sense of entitlement. If you think you are something special or that God winks at sin, then you know nothing of the greatness and the glory of the gospel and the forgiveness we have. Thanksgiving should overflow from our hearts every day because we are a people who have avoided, if you're trusting in Christ, eternal punishment. If you really think you're something special, then that increases entitlement. And when I'm talking about entitlement, we really have to beat this back in Bernie, Texas, because we think we're something special. And we think we're entitled to good treatment. And we're entitled. God is entitled to be our celestial concierge service and produce the kind of life we think we deserve. But that wasn't the case for ancient Israel and shouldn't be the case for us. Gratitude. Thanksgiving overflows because God's righteous anger, which was rightly and justly due to us for sin, has been turned away and he comforts us with his compassion. And so giving thanks should mark our life through an understanding of the gospel and what we have avoided and been delivered from because of Christ's cross work. Giving thanks. And the second thing here that should mark our remnant life, if we're really going to live the good life, if we're going to flourish 
not only is it giving thanks, but it's this declaration that God is my salvation. This is in verse 3, behold, God is my salvation. So this is a statement that they are looking to God as the only source of their salvation, that He is primary in salvation. Just this statement doesn't work in a man-centered modern Christianity. It doesn't work. Why is that? Because people will say, well, let's look at verse 2. God is my salvation. Well, that really means God is 99.9999999999 responsible for my salvation. But I'm still that point. 0-1-1-1-1-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-
to get myself out of a hard situation, looking to God alone. And this right relationship is also reflected in, look at this, I mean, are these not the words for 2023? And will not be afraid. Do you read that and say, give me some of that. There's stuff I got to be afraid of now that I didn't even know about a couple years ago. Will not be afraid. Why? They have faced extremely terrifying warfare and slavery, abuse and deep deportation. Yet they can say they will not be afraid because they know and trust in God. And then look at this, this right relationship. God is my salvation. It's reflected in who they trust, in the fact that they are not afraid. Two more results. For the Lord God is my strength. In other words, the place that they look to for protection and to be a fortress is God himself. That's where they derive strength, not in good circumstances, not in things going their way, but in God himself. And then look at this, and my song. It's the fourth result of being rightly related to God. In other words, this is the joy and happiness of the one who trusts in God, breaking out and singing. Part of our worship is singing with joy as we reflect on the wonder of this relationship we have, that He is our salvation, and that we can give thanks to Him. And so the song is the source of the joy, the celebration, and the worship that happens as a result of this transforming experience of having God as our salvation. And you see at the end of verse 2, he has become my salvation. And this is a statement really that, especially as we live the remnant life, we are transformed by the reality of our salvation to be a kind, certain kind of person and to have a character that reflects those who belong to God through salvation. Now, a couple things to note here. The first, when you read my strength and my song, in other words, my reason for celebration, I think there's a teaching that has done a great disservice in the church, and that is to separate joy and happiness. Joy and happiness. You've been taught this, I know. I have too. Joy, we say, is a state of being. And joy is secure, and that comes from our union with Christ and our relationship with God. That's joy. But happiness, in contrast to joy, is not a state. Happiness is more or less an emotion, how we feel. And happiness comes and goes, and it's based on circumstances. That has no biblical basis. Zero biblical basis. Show me where it is in the Bible. What I can tell you is in both Hebrew and Greek, the semantic domain, which is the range of meaning for the words that are used for joy and happiness, 
and how those are translated into English really makes those two words synonymous, not different. And I think we need more happiness in our Christian life in terms of the joyful expression which comes from the thanksgiving that our heart overflows with because God has rescued us from hell, from sin and death, from misery. And so I'm inviting you into the kind of remnant life that is, imagine this, happy, joyful. And really the measurement of your joy is in part... You know, just think about for a moment, what erodes our joy? What erodes our joy? I mean, we live in a world that is the exact opposite of what I've described to you. And the more you sort of immerse yourself in that world, the less joy, happiness, thanksgiving, the less you will look to God as your salvation, the one whom you trust, And for sure, the more afraid you will be. If our eternity is secure in Christ, and I hope yours is, we have nothing to fear. For us, to live is Christ. To die, that's gain. We have nothing, no thing to fear. And so I hope I've shown you a picture of the life you can have through Jesus Christ, as God's expression of faithfulness to his people. He has not forgotten his people. In every age, he gathers his people, and he will take us all the way home, and our lives overflow in thanksgiving as we trust in him, as we're not afraid, as we look to him for strength, and we celebrate with joy and happiness as we worship and follow him. All of it goes back to, he has become my salvation. That's the remnant life he calls us to. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that this remnant life would be ours, that you would awaken us by the power of your spirit to the joy, yet again, the joy of the gospel, of what it is to be saved. Guide us and lead us in our life this week. Surely we know disappointing things will happen, both in our culture, in our society, to us personally. We will have things to lament over today, this week, but that isn't the end of the story. And so guide us that we might be a people who overflow with thanksgiving in right relationship with you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.